for this morning. And so welcome to those who are not here with us this morning as well, but able to, to listen later online or um, on YouTube. We are beginning today, uh, beginning the finish, beginning the wrap-up of Mark's Gospel, um, having started in February this year, uh, way back in chapter 1, verse 1, it's been about 10 months, and uh, we're, we're almost at the end, we're finishing it off now with the last three chapters that cover um, the, the final hours of Jesus' life and his death and then his resurrection. And rather than going through these three chapters verse by verse, bit by bit, as we've been doing through the year, we did spend time there in Easter. And instead, I just wanted to do them uh, kind of a broad brushstroke and, and look at the bigger picture of how this final scene of scenes of Jesus' life close out Mark's gospel and the overall message. So today we're going to look at chapters 14 and 15. First, we're going to have a, a watch of a short video, which is an explanation of Mark's gospel as a whole. Uh, fingers crossed it's going to work today. We have some technical issues, but we'll see how we go. And then um, after the video, Wayne's going to read two passages for us, one from chapter 14 and then another from chapter 15. So, The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there, because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic king. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together, and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized, and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So, it couldn't be more clear, it's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account, it's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic king. And it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant. Or in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. 
which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here, now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them, and every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the son of God. Which is crazy. All right, so Wayne's going to read to us from the beginning of chapter 14 and the end of chapter 15. And Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. Um, the, the version that I'm reading is the uh, NIV version, the New International Virgin Version. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this is now Mark chapter 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima salachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. 
With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Father, we pray that the words, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you today. We ask that as we open your word and reflect now on your word together, um, that you would humble and soften our hearts that we may receive a word, uh, uh, input from you. And we ask that you would open our ears to hear what you're saying to us. Lord, bring these words alive. Uh, speak to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Lord, I pray that you would be the one who is glorified in our hearts and in my heart and mouth this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we just read was kind of the bookends of uh, chapters 14 and 15, um, which would sometimes be known as the passion narrative or the passion. Um, I just want to give a quick summary of what happens in these two chapters. Uh, it starts with the Jewish leaders trying to find ways to kill Jesus, and um, that's then um, where this story where the, with the woman and with the jar of perfume happens. Um, Judas agrees to betray Jesus to the leading priests after that, they then have the Last Supper um, around the, at the Passover time. Um, and they're on the way to the Mount of Olives, and that's where Jesus says, you guys are all, to his followers there, you're all going to desert me. They're at the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus, it's where he prays, um, uh, Father, if this cup can be taken from me, if there's any other way, and yet not what I will, but what you will, God. Um, he's then arrested. He says, why do you come with swords? You could have got me any time in the temple. I haven't fought against you. Uh, there's accusations then made against him. They say, are you the Messiah? That's where he responds, I am, and you will see the, uh, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Uh, same as what we heard in the passage last week. Peter then denies him uh, uh, soon after that, and then we move on to the trial before Pilate. He's mocked, hail, King of the Jews, in this mocking kind of way, the crucifixion, where Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after another cry... The temple sanctuary curtain behind which the presence of God dwelt uh, is torn in two. And that's the point where we, we see this Roman officer. Um, very strange because this, this was not a Jewish man. Not a, he was considered to be an enemy of the Jews, of the people who knew of the God Yahweh. He says, uh, this man, Jesus, was truly the son of God. This Roman officer at the foot of the cross. And then it finishes with uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected high council member, take us for the body and buries him in the, the tomb and the Sabbath day begins. That's kind of a summary of the, the passion narrative, at least in Mark's gospel. All through this narrative, there's this distinct attitude that Jesus has as he's accused and as he's beaten and mocked and killed. Uh, and that's that he's accepting of it. it. It's not that it's without struggle or angst. How could it be? It's terrible what happens. But it's, it's only with God that he expresses any kind of desire that, the, that he would rather this not happen. He doesn't fight back or push back against those who are doing it to him. But, and, and even then, with, even though there's this struggle with God, he, he ultimately says, your will be done, Father. He, he submits completely to God's will. 
um, as was, was mentioned in the video that we, that we watched, um, the whole time, this, this whole time in Jerusalem, um, in, this is the final and third and final scene of Mark's Gospel, chapters 11 uh, through 16, um, in particular 11 through um, um, 13, is about how Jesus, who's now been identified as the Messiah, the promised one for the Israelites, it's how he becomes king. That's the theme. Uh, and it's it, not that he, fight, he doesn't fight with a sword. In fact, he condemns Peter, who pulls out the sword to try and fight back. He says, no, that's not how this is going to happen. He doesn't just do away with his enemies as they taunt him, and, um, and he doesn't come down from the cross uh, when they, say, they tempt him, say, well, prove yourself to us. Prove you that you're the king, the Messiah, by doing this. He doesn't push away those who mock him. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't defend himself against accusations, and he even accepts a woman anointing him with oil as if anointing him for burial, is what he says. He's, he's expecting and accepting of death. And so this tells us Jesus the Messiah, he becomes king through willingly giving up his life. This is the message of, of Mark's gospel, especially towards the end. The whole of Mark's gospel is about a shifting of expectation and perspective about the Messiah, the promised one of the Israelites, the Jews. Um, it's about a shifting of expectation about who he is, who this Messiah will be, how he will be established, how he will be enthroned. From this expectation, which was he'll be a mighty, powerful overthrower to a different kind of Messiah, a humble, self-giving servant who would give up his life, and that's how he would be exalted. The whole final passion scene opens with a woman who holds a different perspective on what would the appropriate use was of a jar of very expensive perfume. She, she saw things differently. And then it ends with this soldier who was the first person in all of Mark's account of Jesus' life to declare, this man is the Son of God. He's the first. And he... That's crazy, as the video was about to go on and say, because he wasn't even a Jew. He shouldn't have been able to understand this. He wasn't one of the ones who was supposed to know what God was like and what God's plans were, and yet he was the first to see it from this perspective. What if God really wants us, and what if what he really wants for us is to see things differently, to change our mind, our perspective, our thoughts, thinking um, about the things of this world, about, about, him, about God himself, so that we see God as he really is and we see this world that he's created as it truly is. Not just how we've come to understand things, but God's perspective. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment called Renovation of the Heart. Anyone read anything by Dallas Willard? Oh, okay. What, Mark? <laughs> Highly recommend it. Great, great. Um, he's got another book. I forget the name of, but read his book called Renovation of the Heart. Uh, it talks about what makes a human being and, and and how we operate. You know, heart, body, mind, soul, all that kind of thing. And he says, in terms of the mind, he says one of the most difficult things to change is someone's mind. We are stubborn. We we have our mind set, and it's really hard for that to change. And yet, how did this whole journey? Through Jesus' life in Mark's gospel begin. What did he say? If you remember way back to February, uh, early in February. The time has come. 
The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. What does repent mean? Change your thinking. Turn around, and it can mean turn your mind around. Change the way you think. Jesus' whole deal, his whole message, his whole intention, his ministry was to to get us to shift the way we think and the way we see things. And John Mark, the writer of Mark's Gospel, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes his account of Jesus' life with this intent, to show his readers not the saviour they expected or thought would come, but the true saviour, the true Messiah as he was really as he really was, representing God as he really is. Because if those who follow Jesus would choose to follow this Messiah, this real one, not the one they thought they would get, that would shape how they lived their lives. Jesus became king by willingly laying his life down. That was how he was exalted, by laying it down. And so what that means is if you serve this king, as opposed to the one we may have expected, you accept that as you move up through his ranks in his kingdom, so to speak, you'll gain not more power or wisdom or might or more anything. You'll actually be giving up your life as you step up in God's kingdom. You'll be laying it down. You'll be laying down your life. So what if changing the way we think and the way we see and feel is at the heart of the Christian faith? What if, it's that, if that's what God really wants of us, to really see the kingdom and to, and to see the king when we're ordinarily blind to it? Instead, we actually have kingdom kind of lenses. Uh, or maybe to put it another way, I used this phrase last week, to beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. Um, that's from a book called The Power of Moments by, by Heath and Heath. Um, but beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. You know, it was quite reasonable in, in every sense to suggest that pouring a whole bottle of very, very expensive perfume on Jesus' head was a waste. could have been used in ways to, to feed the poor and help the poor, and it was worth a lot of money. Why? Why waste it? That, that doesn't seem reasonable. And yet Jesus affirmed and commended this woman's extravagant expression of love that others thought was ludicrous, completely unreasonable. She had this different perspective on what really mattered in that moment. The Roman soldier, an enemy of the Jews, no biblical understanding, no knowledge about what God was supposed to be like or anything like that, He looked at Jesus and recognized his mind had been changed. This is God's son. This is where salvation starts, right? We we, we believe that that this, this life with God, being saved, being a child of God, it starts with a significant shift in perspective. It's brought about through, I believe, through a gift of God, which we call faith. And God gives us the faith to see that Jesus is worth giving our whole lives to. And, and that's a, that becomes a gift of God, but also a response that we make so that we now shift our thinking and go, I am going to give my life to Jesus. I need to live my whole life submitted to him as my Lord. And it's nothing short of a miracle when that happens. When one of us changes our thinking, the most impossible thing to really happen, to, to decide to trust Jesus with our life. But being a child of God is also not just a moment, a, a time when, when salvation begins, but it's also a lifetime of allowing God to change and to correct our thinking and to, to shift our perspective, right? 
Um, because for a whole range of we, reasons, we, we seem to believe we've gotten to know God. We seem to believe, yes, we understand how the world works. And we have kind of clear expectations, a clear mindset of how things are. That person's good, that person's bad, he's rich, she's poor, that music's holy, that music's evil, they're right, they're wrong, right? There's this whole framework that we build up, and this is how things are, whole worldview. And then every now and then, the matrix, uh, the kingdom of God, kind of comes into view, and God some somehow kind of gives us eyes to see again how we, we don't actually fully think like him yet. You know, we, we don't actually really have a fully kingdom-shaped mindset about the world and even about God himself. And so God is on a mission, I think, to change our mind, to change our thinking. Um, I find that God does this in all sorts of ways. Um, and, and to start with, sometimes it's out of the blue. The things that catch my attention. And, and we're to notice these things, notice these little moments where God grabs our attention. And, and I just find that this happens sometimes, and it's kind of like I just sense, God, you're ruffling my feathers a bit now, right? You know, uh, you, that thing that just caught me, you, you're trying to teach me something there, and we need to follow up on those things. You know, often for me, it's when one of, my, the, one of the beautiful and adorable members of my family have been less than adorable, um, is when sometimes when I'm processing that, God can grab my attention because the right response for me immediately is to exert my rightness and to, to, to say how it is, and then I just get this little feeling, this little nudge uh, to look at things from another perspective, maybe see things through their eyes, maybe to go, you know what, maybe I need to, 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 to look at things through the eyes of the crazy three-year-old. Um, right now, and just and just try and try and try and think about things differently, or maybe through the eyes of the mum who's worn out by the crazy three-year-old, um, and 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 she see things differently in that moment. Um, but we've also got to go looking for the nudges, the little things where God just goes, oh, "Hang on a second, let me change how you're thinking right now." We've got to actually uh, give, give our attention to what God is catching our attention with. Um, so that he can tweak our thinking perspective. The best way to become more attuned to God is to tune into him. I know that sounds like one equals one, but the, the best way to, to be attuned to God through all of our life is to have specific times when we go, I'm, I'm specifically and intentionally tuning into you now, God. Um, I didn't used to understand how dedicated time with God, whether that be in prayer or in the Bible or worship, in the morning and or evening, I didn't used to understand how that could affect other moments in my day. Like, it's two different times. Um, but I, I totally get it now. And, and I think the only way you can get it is when you actually experience it. Uh, it's, and I'm sure many of you feel the same way. It's, it's almost like once a day what I'm doing is cleaning the lenses on my glasses through which I see the world and the kingdom of God. Because over time, they've, over the last day, they've gotten clouded up and so I need to polish them off again so that I can see God and I can see the kingdom and I can see how things really are in that moment. But then the lenses stay clean for a good portion of the rest of the day. And so it's not just in that moment, in that intentional time that I've tuned in or, or, or focused in, it's, it, it continues. 
and I'm more aware of the, 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 when God gets my attention. Or it might be, another analogy might be clearing out the gunk that's gotten into my ears once a day. Getting some, what are those things called? Little earbuds. And, and just taking the time to listen to his word then and there, but now my ears are a bit clearer for every other moment because I've cleaned them out. Um, something that I noticed this week, um, I guess a bit of a combination of intentionally tuning into God, but then just something that randomly grabbed my attention, um, was to do with the reality that, that sometimes Christians, as much as anyone, even more than some, become so fixed in their mindset, that we can become so fixed in our mindset that we can fail to see what God is up to. We can even become wary of what God is up to because we're fixed in our mindset. So let's talk about Kanye. I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I think we need to. Um, In case you're not up with the times like I am, um, not, (laughs) Kanye West is a rapper, musician, producer. He's very, very wealthy, very famous, very successful, married to Kim Kardashian and pretty much the poster boy for all things inappropriate, uh, not in any way representative of, of, of Christian values. In fact, quite the opposite in, in many phases of his life, um, and there's been a few. Um, the thing is, he recently has professed to have given his life to Jesus, changed his lifestyle completely, and he's just released an album called Jesus is King. And he, he goes around on Sunday mornings with his gospel choir called Sunday Service and does worship services and stuff. Um, now, the reaction to this has been praise God from some. God's turned a life like Kanye West around. And then has, it's been incredibly skeptical from others. Now, don't get me wrong. I think a healthy level of skepticism in these kind of things is a good thing. Um, Kanye is actually a very, very intelligent person. And um, I'll admit to thinking that the whole thing could just be a big money-making exercise um, because he's, he, I wouldn't put it past him. But I've been listening to his album um, and trying to go, okay, what's, what's going on here? Um, first of all, his, his album that he's just released is full of repentance, giving glory to God, pointing to Jesus, referring to Scripture, worship. And, and as I was listening... Something, something struck me. He's written this, one of the songs on the album is called Hands On, and, and I want to read some of the lyrics. Read, not rap, okay? I'm not going to rap them. Um, I, I meant to put them up on the screen, but I'm just going to have to read them. Um, this is how, partway through the song, this is how it goes. Said I'm going to, uh, uh, yeah, maybe I should rap it. <laughs> Said I'm going to do a gospel album, and then as if someone's asking the question, he says, what have you been hearing from the Christians? He says, they'll be the first one to judge me. Told people God was my mission. What have you been hearing from the Christians? They'll be the first one to judge me. If they only see the wrongs, never listen to the songs, because just to listen is a fight, but you're with me for the fight. Only if they knew what I knew. I was never new till I knew of true and living God, Yeshua, then the true and living God. Somebody please pray for me. This is what grabbed my attention. He then says, I deserve all the criticism you've got. If that's all the love you have, that's all you got. To say I've changed, you think I'm joking. To praise his name, you ask, what am I smoking? Yes, I understand your reluctancy, but I have a request, you see. Don't throw me up. Lay your hands on me. Please pray for me. 
And I heard this, and I was watching the lyrics on the phone, and I just had this gut-wrenching feeling in my stomach as I heard these lyrics. I said, what if this is a cry, not only of Kanye? And Kanye, fine, because he, he can write a great rap album and with these creative lyrics and everything and express what he's, what he's feeling. But what if this is not just the cry of Kanye, but of countless other sons and daughters of God who Jesus has redeemed recently. But we Christians are continually saying through our words and actions, mm, really need to see the proof first. What if we've become so familiar with this is what a Christian person looks like that when we see somebody whose life used to be and even up until recently has been wildly immoral, we assume like, yeah, they're not one of us yet. Whether they've been adopted into the family or not because that's a thing that happens on a deeply spiritual level by the grace of God through the gift of faith. I actually think that Kanye's request is spot on. And I've heard a number of, of, of uh, wise Christian leaders say the same in the media at the moment um, since his story has blown up on the, in the media. They've just said, pray for him. Pray for him. I admit to praying for Kanye this week. Pray for him. Because every, and not just for him, but for those who are feeling and might express, maybe not in his words, but the same sentiment. Because every time we place another person into God's hands through prayer, we're actually doing something very, very important which allows God to shift our thinking. We're allowing God to show us what he thinks of them rather than either worrying or criticizing or judging. If we simply pray, then it allows God to actually shape somehow, almost mysteriously and mystically through that process of putting them in God's hand to shape our thinking and align our thoughts about others with God. It's incredible how God can kind of change the lens that we're looking through and allow us to see the kingdom of God when we take an attitude that we have towards someone, whether that be anger or skepticism or criticism or frustration or, or unforgiveness, and just say, God, I place them in your hands. Just, just bless them, God. Um, this year... Our theme um, has been, uh, along with um, the mission of our church, like Jesus. As we've looked at the life of Jesus, what does it mean to become more and more like him, to live like him, to become Christ-like? And over time, I've come to realize that, uh, at least from my perspective, when I'm looking for someone who is truly Christ-like, spiritually mature, godly, whatever word you want to use, like Jesus, uh, I'm looking first and foremost, I think, for, for someone who is still allowing God to shape their mind and heart in humility. It's kind of the mark of being like Jesus. It's, it's, it's just so easy to take a different approach and, and think that the person most like Jesus is the most passionate or the most gifted or the most caring or the most driven or the most thoughtful or the most wise or the most loving or the most, most... And yet the most like Jesus is the one who is the least. The most like Jesus is the one who is the least. Who would be willing to be the least so that he would be the focus, the most, the exalted one. You know, I've, I've, I have the privilege of um, being a, a pastor in this community. And um, 
one of the things that I have the privilege of is in that role is just observing little bits, not much, but little bits of the way that more than 200, not, of, not all of you who are here today, but across this community, have more than 200 followers of Jesus serve others and serve God in their day-to-day lives. I only get to see little glimpses of that, some more than others, but possibly a little bit more than, than, than others do, and it's a great privilege. From my limited observations, there are people in our community and every church community that are making a massive kingdom impact that the rest of us see almost none of. People who are, who are absolutely high up in the kingdom, and yet we would notice hardly any of it through our natural eyes. I want to tell you this morning if that's you, and to some extent that is all of us, some more than others admittedly, but I want to tell you that God sees when you are the least, when you do nothing, when you're doing nothing for recognition, nothing for what benefits you, things that only you and the person you're serving know about, God sees. When you are praying for your city or your, your region or your family or just even, even a friend in the secret place, when you pray for them, when you intercede on their behalf so that... Um, you would lift them before God on their behalf. When you could be off doing something more productive or more fun, God sees that. When you spend time with that client who has questions about faith when you could be at home catching up on some much-needed sleep, God sees. When you take your, your surplus and instead of going on a, a, a beautiful overseas holiday, you give it all to further the work of the kingdom of God, the mission of God, God sees. When you take that job that pays a bucket load less than the one you could have because you know it's what God wants and you know it's what will bless others, God sees. When everyone's doing it, whatever it is, and you choose not to, God sees that too. When everyone else is mocking Jesus, whether that be in their words or whether that be in the way they live, and you just say, no, he's the son of God, I must honour him. God sees. God's attention, I believe, is on the kingdom of God being established on earth. And the way the kingdom is established is the way that the king of the kingdom was enthroned. He became the least, not the most, anything, the least. And this is what God wants us to see as well, that the kingdom of God operates differently to the world that we're immersed in. And he's calling us to take part in it by becoming least, by laying our lives down just as he did. Um, And this is is all that matters, offering ourselves, offering yourself everything you have, offering your whole self to Jesus, just like the woman with the jar of the perfume. Not offering this is a subtle difference here, but not offering yourself to the things you think Jesus might consider important. Not offering yourself to the things of Jesus, offering yourself to him, to Jesus. We offer ourselves to him completely so that then he can shape our minds, he can shape our hearts, he can shift our perspective and, and then involve us in the establishment of his kingdom here on earth. Are we offering ourselves, our minds, our hearts, our perspective completely to him, that he may shape 
and change our thinking and use us for his purposes. Father, I ask that as we uh, come to a close this morning, as we give ourselves to you and, and say to you, God, we're available, that's all you want from us. Lord, if we're scared that we will somehow um, not, if we're scared that we'll somehow be missing what we're supposed to be doing because we're waiting for you to speak, I pray that you would remind us that anything we do is only worth doing if you've shown us. Anything we do is only worth doing if you've prompted us, if you've steered us in that direction because we want to be people who bring about fruit that is of the kingdom of God because that is all that will last. And so, Lord, we pray that you, even though we are hard-hearted and even though our minds are so often so fixed and set on things, we, we pray that you would first soften our hearts and open our minds, that you would shift our thinking, that we would align ourselves with you. And therefore, what we do would be both not a burden and fruitful. We pray this in Jesus' name.